This episode has been sponsored by Connor Insurance, an auto owner's insurance company. Hi, this is Abby at Connor Insurance. There have been record amounts of rain all across the country this year. Most damage occurs when water backs up in your drains and basement fixtures. If you have a basement, you need to check the limit your policy provides for water backup. If you aren't sure how to check, just give me a call or visit us at ConnorINS.com. And now the show that bridges the gap between faith and business. Welcome to Bottom Line Faith. On today's show, Ray sits down with entrepreneur, humanitarian, and author, Mr. Ward Brown. Be thankful in all circumstances. Gratefulness to me is, that's the magic bullet. So if you're living in the presence and you're thankful in all circumstances, which is a challenge, thankfulness trumps every other emotion there is. You can't be anxious, you can't be grumpy, you can't be angry, you can't be envious, you can't be any of those things and thankful at the same time. Well, hello, everyone. This is Ray Hilbert, and I am your host here at Bottom Line Faith. We are so glad that you would join us for another episode. I have the amazing, amazing, and humbling honor to travel the country and get to know some of the most incredible Christ followers who are business leaders, marketplace leaders, who have had incredible journeys of following Jesus for years in the marketplace, where we learn their stories, their successes, their failures, how their faiths got them through the difficult times, and also we get some of their best words of encouragement and advice. Well, today I am in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul, in the beautiful state of Minnesota, and I have the incredible privilege of interviewing today, Mr. Ward Bram. Ward, welcome to Bottom Line Faith. Thanks, Ray. I'm just delighted to be here. So check this out, folks. I'm going to just read just a, a few words here about Ward and his background. Served under three U.S. presidents as chairman of the U.S. African Development Foundation. He was awarded the Presidential Citizens Medal, which is the second highest civilian award for his work in Africa by President George W. Bush. He is the first member from the business community to be asked by Congress to give the keynote address back in 2008 at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. He's also a member of the U.S. Aid Advisory Board and the Council on Foreign Relations. We're going to learn more about his organization called ASILI, which means foundation, foundation I right. learned today. Good. He is the author of four books, including Bigger Than Me, Just When I Thought I Had All the Answers, God Changed the Questions. And we're going to learn more about Ward, his journey, and his story here today on Bottom Line Faith. What I'd love to hear is just give us a little bit of your business background, and then we'll tie in the personal stories so that our folks understand some of your business background. Well, I uh, founded two insurance consulting companies, actually right out of college. One was in a life insurance firm that served primarily as a boutique to family investment offices. The other provided employee benefit counseling to larger companies. Okay. And you have uh, sold those companies in the last few years, right? Yeah, I sold, I sold the first company uh, to Wells Fargo in 2006, which was very fortunate. And I just actually negotiated the settlement of my other company with my partner and lifelong brother in Christ, Jeff Bird, about eight years ago. Okay. Well, life really began for you on a spiritual journey in 1993. As you described, that's when you met Jesus. Is that correct? That's correct. I woke up one day. At, I was 39 years old. I had achieved every goal that I'd ever set out for myself. 
I had a wonderful family, a beautiful wife. Life could not have been better. In fact, I'm afraid that had the devil approached me when I was 20 years old and, and made that promise that this is what life would be, I probably would have made the deal. But I woke up realizing that this wasn't what it was cracked up to be. I had a very difficult time putting my finger on it, but all of this success, which, which is relative, uh, but for me, a tremendous amount of financial success and career success, athletic success, there was what I've heard described as a smoldering discontent. And I couldn't put my finger on it, but there was something missing. There was something missing in my life. I read a book called the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, not to learn anything, just make sure Covey got them all right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I was intrigued with this notion of paradigms, that people can see the exact same things from different worldviews and interpret them totally different. Intellectually, I was thinking about people starving in Africa. They were at the time in Somalia, and that thought left me as quickly as it, as it came. And then two weeks later, my pastor asked me to go to Africa with him, which was similar to asking me to go to the moon. <laughs> I said, absolutely not. I couldn't believe he was asking me this question. And he, and he said, well, would you pray about it? And I said, no, I'm not going to pray about it. You're the pastor. You pray about it. You know, I'll think about it. I'll either say yes or no. I had no idea even what he was talking about. But uh, I ended up going on that trip, and it changed the entire projection of my life. Yeah, and, and you describe it, that's really where you met Jesus. And I want to take just a moment to give our audience, Ward, a chance to understand a little bit about what's happened since 1993 for your life. You and some others founded an organization called Asili. Is that correct? Yeah, that it, it's been a gradual more of working with World Vision, a number of organizations, yeah. the U.S. government, and the most recent is Asili. Yeah. So, Ward, as you met Jesus in 1993... Specifically, you just shared with us, you, your pastor invited you to go. He said, pray about it. You said, I don't know what that means. I'll think about it. You ended up going, but something very specific happened to you on that first trip that rocked your world and has since over the last 30 years. Well, we, we were in some very, very difficult places. We were in uh, northern West Pokot, Kenya, on the Uganda border where there was widespread starvation. We went to Masaka, Uganda, arguably the birthplace of AIDS. I was an eyewitness to something that had previously just been a statistic. We all read these statistics, you know, 10,000 people die a star, but what do you do with a statistic like that? It doesn't, it can't really mean anything out of context. When you see it, and it was deeply humbling. It was deeply humbling. And it made me realize what else don't I know a lot about? And that moment came in uh, a very, very remote village in Ethiopia, traveling along. A bumpy road saw a small girl, turns out she was five years old, the same age as my daughter. Didn't find out until a year or so later that her name was Circulum. I went back to visit her. And I realized looking into this little girl's eyes with her, with her chest literally cut open by the rope that was hauling this ridiculous bundle of sticks. I mean, she was, she was like a donkey, her little heart beating like a sparrow. And I realized the unbelievable difference between the life that she was living and facing in the life of my own five-year-old back home where we lived. And something just cracked. It was at that moment, it wasn't like Jesus spoke to me. It wasn't like a even an epiphany. It took me quite a while to figure out that I believe in retrospect that Jesus was was in that little girl and in her eyes, and that was my that was a, that was a direct connect. 
And you have since been back to the continent of Africa how many times? 50. Just finished the 50th trip. 50 times in the last 30 years. Yep. Give us a, a little bit of a framework of the work that your organization does there, some of the things you've seen, some of the, the things you've addressed, and, and what's occupying your efforts there. Well, almost everything we did didn't work. And in looking back over the last 30 years, that's really true universally. Aid and development just generally hasn't done what it's promised to do. So that first trip, I got a group of business people together, and we all pitched in a considerable amount of money, and we built wind pumps in northern Kenya to provide a mechanical way of bringing water up to people who were dying as a lack of a lack of water. I mean, it seemed like a... Mm-hmm great thing to do. We didn't consult the people. We didn't consult the community. It turns out they were nomadic. We screwed up their whole way of living. And all four of these wind pumps that we invested at the time was a fortune are rusted and on the ground. And that was one of many, many lessons on how how giving people things doesn't work. And we've all heard the adage, you know, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach him to fish and you feed them for a lifetime. And I say, that's not true. If you want to eat for a lifetime, you need to own the pond. And that is really the pivot that we have made in, in recent years. The question I'm asked more than any other is, what's the best way to help the poor? The answer is to help them not be poor anymore. <laughs> and how do you do that? You need a job. And so I'm a huge proponent of investing in Africa. We need major investments. Everything that is is exported over there should be built, manufactured there, provided, made by and employed by Africans. That's a universal principle at play there, right? You know, we even face that here in the States, you know, the just how much aid should we give, how much assistance should we give to lift people out of poverty and those sorts of things. And you've seen firsthand over the last 30 years some very legitimate models that work and things that don't. Just give us an example of a project or something you've got going right now that's got you very excited, full of hope, because you really see that it is going to lift a number of people out of poverty. Well, you know, to your first point, this idea of donor fatigue. I mean, and it it actually stuns me when people talk about too much of our federal budget is dedicated to foreign aid, when in fact it's less than 1%. When people realize that, they're going, well, that doesn't sound like very much. And in fact, it's not. The key is to how do you funnel that aid in a way that actually works. We're working on a social experiment and innovation. We hope to be the Uber Hmm. of the humanitarian space. Uh, We want to disrupt the whole thing. We want to turn it upside down if we can. The way that we're doing that is by providing clean water, and by clean, I mean water that we drink ourselves, basic medical care, and by that I mean clinics that we would bring our children and grandchildren to, using a for-profit business model as the platform. We originally felt that in order to do that, all the people would need to be subsidized, so we just give them the money. Give yeah. these extremely, ridiculously poor people the money. They can then buy these this water and buy these medical services from a Walgreens franchise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there'd be plenty of paying customers. So, But what we found out is these people are already paying. Um, and so my, my byline is to, the, to this whole issue of donor fatigue is in response to the question, how much money do you need to any organization, including the government, the answer is more. And how long do you need it? The answer is forever. And we're surprised that there's fatigue. I mean, yeah. that's really depressing. Yeah, yeah. And so we're breaking that mold. And in this model, a zone that treats 
probably 25 to 30,000 people, cost $100,000 a year for four years, matched by the U.S. government, which covers all the infrastructure and the first four-year operating expenses, the good will continue on forever with no further donations. And that's it's never been done. So we're talking about free enterprise as the foundation for a model that's going to be sustainable for as long as we could see. I don't like that word, okay. sustainable, All right. because it's one of those words. If I ask somebody, tell me, how, how's your business doing? And they say sustainable. You want it to thrive. <laughs> I like profitable. Yeah, you want it to thrive. Gotcha. And when I ask yeah. people, how, how do you always get the medicine that you need? It's not through donations. It's through Walgreens that operates as a business. Yeah. So I'm, I'm more and more convinced that the business model is the only model that ultimately will work. So Ward, before we go any further, if uh, someone who's listening to our conversation wants to learn more about the organization, what you're doing, what's the best way for them to check you out? Well, we're working with a, a contractor for this work in Africa, the American Refugee Committee, which has just recently rebranded into Alight, www.americanrefugeecommittee.org, or better, it's brand new, is a light, A-L-I-G-H-T dot org. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. So I'd like to talk just for a couple of minutes, like where some of your business knowledge came from, some of the mistakes you made, things you've learned over the course of your career in business. As you look back, what's the biggest mistake you ever made in business? What would you want to do over again? You know, I, I guess the, in reality, I wouldn't want to do anything over again, not because we didn't make mistakes, but because those mistakes allowed us to eventually be successful. I guess one was just realizing my strengths and my weaknesses. Yep. I knew I had a lot of strengths. I told everybody that I had a lot of strengths, but I wasn't aware that I had a lot of weaknesses. So <laughs> in business, I compensated those weaknesses with somebody who was really smart. Yeah. So I'm relational. I know how to talk. I know how to get along with people. I know how to make friends. And my partner was just the opposite. He couldn't make a friend for the life of him. <laughs> Accounting, lawyer, absolutely brilliant brain. And we formed just a wonderful partnership yeah. that lasted our entire business careers. So I'd say, you know, your greatest weakness is your greatest strength and vice versa. I I would say the key to success in business is being relational versus transactional. If you put the emphasis on a transaction, you're going to succeed short term. You may succeed long term, but it's going to be hard and it's not going to be very much fun. But if you build trusted relationships, it makes it both those things happen. Yeah. yeah. And so we always did what we consider to be the very best thing for the client. So as Stephen Covey would say, you have a triple win. Everybody has to win or it's no deal. So taking that background, that experience, you know, how do you transfer that now to your work in Africa? You know, I'm allergic to a sales pitch. You probably are too. You can see it coming, right? Somebody sits down and then they go, oh, by the way, you know, as long as I got you here and here it comes. And I've never liked that. And we never do that. So I'd say what transfers relationally is that we never force, we never pressure, we never, we just invite people. Yeah. We say this is this is something that we are finding a tremendous amount of joy. We see God's fingerprints all over this thing. And we would invite you to get involved. Come and see it. And for you know a lot of people, that's a stretch. Eastern Congo is a dangerous place. Yeah. But that approach, it's not an approach, it's very real, is 
we want people who are called to this. And we realize that there are very few people called to Africa. Yeah. But at the same time, we've seen many, many, I'd say every life, every person that has ever been on a trip to Africa that I've been a part of, there's been a significant change in their life. People say to me, so do you have to go to Africa to find God? And I'm saying, yep, I did. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I had to go halfway around the world because he was yelling at me in Minnesota and I was too busy. I couldn't listen to him. Uh He had to get me out of my comfort zone completely before he had my attention. Well, I'm going to speculate something based on what you shared. You were talking about the difference in the key between being relational and transactional, and you told the story of your first attempt in Africa was building those units that eventually just rusted out, right? And so maybe your intent and your heart was honorable, but that was a transaction, right? Because you hadn't had or taken the time to really get to know those people, really get to know their needs and what was going to be a real win for them. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, you're a good listener. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's that's actually an excellent example because when we went back, I took these investors, we put up the money, built the wind pumps, then they went to see it. And we're in a riverbed with a bunch of, it's like we fell out of a National Geographic. I mean, bows and arrows and spears, and these people were furious. Yeah. Not what we expected. You know, we expected balloons and thank yous and... (laughs) Confetti. And confetti. And we, I mean, these people were furious, and they said, what took you so long? And we're saying, what are you talking about? And they said, well, this wind pump broke, you know, three months ago, and it's taken you three months to come and fix it. And it went off in my mind... I learned firsthand the devastating effect of dependence. There was a community that was just 30 miles past that that came to us and said, we want, we'd like one of those wind pumps. And we're listening to the elder. And they said, we're willing to put a down payment on the wind pump. We're willing to give you cows in advance. We did the deal. Uh, that was the last wind pump to go down. <laughs> but that it was interesting because when we looked at a map, that was outside. They'd never had development. They'd never had relief. In the famine, people just died there, I mean, tragically. But the problem wasn't, isn't in relief. If somebody's starving to death, you feed them. The way you do that, it should be nuanced. But then this development thing is way trickier, right? How do you prevent, how do you make people independent? There's a lot of similarities to Minnesota. I mean, this... When I look back on it, you think of Africa, you think of, you know, 2000 B.C. or something. I'm saying it's actually Minnesota in the 1700s. Yeah. Everybody's poor. Everybody's making less than a dollar a day. Right. You just grew crops and ate them, and then pretty soon you grew bigger crops, and a highway came through, and a business started up. And And that's moving beyond sustainability into the thriving we were talking about. So I'm sure that if we had a five-hour program, we would hear story after story after story. But I'd like you to share one story that comes to mind for our audience where you really understood God's calling for your life and your work and what you're doing in Africa. You know, I'm. you're right. There are, there are a lot of stories. I think what I'd rather share is an overall experience okay. of, of where I am right now. And that is the difficulty of actually living a life of following Jesus. And we all say we do, particularly when we're with other believers, it's really easy. But I found that it's very easy when you're outside the company of believers to become a chameleon. And you take on you take on all these different behavior patterns and everything else, which then questions in my own mind, am I am I really? And I, I no longer consider myself a Christian. And the, the reason for that is in Africa, it's a political term. Yeah. 
I consider myself a follower of Jesus. And what I found is that as a follower of Jesus, doors just open incredibly wide. So here's your story. I'm in Rwanda, 1997. This is right after the genocide. And I'm with Senator Dave Durenberger. And we're meeting with President Kagame on the night before his inauguration. We got to talking, and at one point in the conversation, I said, Mr. President, is there any role for the church in the rebuilding of Rwanda? And I saw the general. I mean, he leaned over. I, I mean, I had to lean back. He, he was furious, and he just shouted out, none. And Durenberger kicks me in the shin under the table and starts talking about socioeconomic impact or something or other. And it was about maybe 10 minutes later, there was a lull in the conversation, and I said, Mr. President, do you think that there's a role for Jesus in the reconciliation of your country? And I got kicked so hard under the table <laughs> that, I, that I literally winced, and everything changed. Big smile on his face. He sat back in his chair, and he goes, of course there's a role for Jesus in the rebuilding of our country. If people had been following Jesus, this genocide would never have happened. And it was such a tangible example for me Incredible. of the difference between religion and the power of Jesus, the reality of Jesus, the idea of following a religion versus following a person incarnate. And that changed forever, both my relationship and my outlook oh. as it relates to that, Thank you. That's a perfect example, perfect story of what we're talking about, because really why we do this program here at Bottom Line Faith is to be an encouragement. That's it. Just to be an encouragement of those who are trying to follow Jesus, who their heart's desire is to follow Jesus in leadership and in business. And it can be lonely. It can be difficult. It often is. So that's that's really the perfect word of encouragement mm. there about it's not about your Christian faith. It is about following Jesus. And that's the encouragement that our audience needs to hear. I'd love to transition to your book. It's called Bigger Than Me. Just when I thought I had all the answers, God changed the questions. Tell us a little bit about the book. Why'd you write it? And what do you hope people would get by reading the book? Well, the reason that I wrote it is I have a number of medical conditions that result in having a compromised life expectancy. Don't know what that is, but I started thinking to myself, at the time, I've got my first grandchild on the way, but I didn't have any. I didn't have any prospects. So I'm thinking, gosh, you know, if I died tomorrow, my grandkids will never even know who, uh, who I was. The original intent behind the book was to put everything that I considered to be wisdom that I gained through other people, put it to paper. There would actually be a, a written kind of legacy of things that were important to me and my own life experiences. And some friends encouraged me to actually pursue it as, as a book. I tackled topics, and I talk about topics that people don't talk about. We just don't talk about, particularly guys don't talk about, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. things like death, things like greed, money, faith, all the things that are really important are secondary to sports and just kind of this, you know, often kind of mindless conversation. So I tackled each one of those as best I could, and that was really exciting. That was really an exciting adventure as well. It's, all, it's in the first person. I share a lot of things about myself that I wanted my kids to know about, things that I've struggled with, things that I really don't have any idea about. And it really is true. The questions have changed. It's no longer about what do I need to do to be successful. The question is, what do I need to do to actually follow Jesus? 
So this is a perfect segue because the last section of every interview and conversation that we have here is, I kind of call it the advice and insights section. And so as you reflect back over uh, the writing of the book, what's maybe one or two lessons that God brought to mind or reminders that you would love to pass along to our listening audience? You know, as as followers of Jesus, we're told to love God, love our families, and our career in that order. And I lived it in the opposite order. I never acknowledged it, but the truth is, is that if someone were to have followed me around mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. said, list this priorities, number one would have been my business, number two would have been my family, and number three would have been God. So it's in reverse order. I think had I realized that at a younger age, it would have made me realize that this devotion to business, which in my own mind was well-intended, right? I'm going to be a good provider. I'm going to provide my family. will never want, in retrospect, a pretty good percentage of that in reality was ego. Yeah, I wanted to be successful, and I wanted the world to know that I'm successful, and I wanted to be the best. Yeah. But it was disguised under these lesser under these lesser motives. So the idea of really questioning those priorities, particularly in terms of being present, you know, I've been retired for eight years. I don't even know what that means. I'm trying to figure out. You know, <laughs> my wife Chris says, "Would you please figure out how to retire a little bit." Sounds to me like what you do in between Africa yeah. trips. That's what you're yeah. trying to figure well, out. Well, <laughs> you know, and, and, and again, I think retire, as you mentioned, retirement's not in the Bible. Right. And, the, and I've always had a fear of being irrelevant, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. there's some ego in that too. Yeah. yeah. So I guess my biggest thing is wherever I look is this ego thing that's kind of lurking back there. Yeah. And being able to spotlight it, at least being able to identify it has been really helpful to me, a humbling which I need all that I can get too. (laughs) Where can our listeners get a copy of the book, Bigger Than Me? Uh, Amazon. Amazon, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the normal online places are there. Fantastic. We're getting near the end of our conversation, so I have just a couple more questions for you. One, you've touched on it, but I want to go just a little deeper. I want you to go back and give advice to the 20-year-old you. If you were sitting across the table from the 20-year-old you, what would you say? I'd say don't take yourself so seriously. You're not all that. The world does not revolve around word brim. That's very difficult for somebody 20 years old. But just the idea of, you know, the first sentence in Rick Warren's book, first sentence, first chapter, it's not about you. Yeah. But again, in looking back, because I've done this, I've really gone back and I've really studied and all the things that I, I did, they all ended up working for good. So God uses those mistakes. I think if I hadn't made the mistakes, I'd even been more arrogant. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> you know, and just when you think you're going on your back, you know, you're deep, 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 you're back over yourself. So <laughs> we, all, we just need Jesus as a guide. Keep our eye on him and let him, to the best of our ability, let him drive the bus. So. That's fantastic. One more time. Word, what is the best website for folks to learn about some of the work that you're doing on the continent of Africa? It would be www.americanrefugeecommittee.org. Recently rebranded. I'm on the board, so I'm going to get really mad if I don't do the rebranding. That's right. <laughs> and that's a light, A-L-I-G-H-T.org. It's the same website. I'll get you to the same, same place. Same place. Okay, thank you very much. So 
word as of the recording of this interview, we've been on the air with Bottom Line Faith for a little over two years, and this is always the last question that uh, I ask a guest here on the program, and I call it my 423 question. It's based out of Proverbs 423, Mm. where Solomon says, above all else, guard your heart. Mm. He gives us all these great pieces of advice and wisdom and counsel in Proverbs, but this particular one, he says, above all else, I want you to remember this one thing, guard your heart, for from it flows all of life. So, Ward, as you um, enter this next chapter of your life, and if you have a chance to pass along one piece of advice, not only to your children, family, friends, and loved ones, but of course to our listeners here at Bottom Line Faith, what's the one piece of advice you want to leave us with? I would say probably live one day at a time. And there are a lot of variances on that theme, but the idea, I spent most of my uh, younger life living in the future or living in the past, and I'm slowly coming to realize that yeah. the best place is for me to enjoy one moment at a time, one day at a time, and to be thankful in all circumstances. And gratefulness to me is, that's the magic bullet. Yes. So if you're living in the presence and, and you're thankful in all circumstances, which is a challenge, but thankfulness trumps every other emotion there is. You can't be anxious, you can't be grumpy, you can't be angry, you can't be envious, you can't be any of those things, and thankful at the same time. Oh, that's so good. It's, uh, I've got a lot to be thankful for, and I am, and I try to remember that. <laughs> Forget all the time, but I try. I, uh, in a recent interview, the person I was talking with, they said that you know it is about living in the present is the only place we find true joy, because when we're living in the past, we have regrets, we have sorrows. When we're living in the future, we have fears and worries. Mm -hmm. And then he said this, and I hadn't thought of this before. He said that when Moses was being told by the Lord to go back and speak to Pharaoh, right, he was really nervous, and he said, well, who should I say sent me? And God didn't say, tell them I was. God didn't say, tell them I will be. Tell them I am sent you. And I think that that was a great lesson for me. So perfect. I am so excited. Thank you for your investment of time today here at Bottom Line Faith. And what an amazing story. And that's what I love about this program is hearing these stories. You met Jesus in 1993, and you are a rare breed, my friend, because you have found your very specific Mm -hmm. and unique purpose and calling for all the days of your life. And that's serving and loving people on the continent of Africa. It's been a it's been a great gift and a point that I really think is important to make is people say, gosh, you've just done so much for so many people. I'm saying, wait a second, I've been the recipient. I, mean, I always thought doing good for other people is boring. I said, Are you kidding? I mean, this is this is this this has been the ride of my life. So you find that purpose, hook onto it, and you are in for the ride of your life. That's fantastic. Thank you for being our guest. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Well, folks, and I say this quite often on the program, I wish I had hours at times to sit down with our guests. And we just got a glimpse today of Ward and his journey and his experience and story after story after story. What a man of faith. What a man of accomplishment. Listen, it is an honor to host you here at Bottom Line Faith. We get emails and texts and so forth here. Quite often folks ask, what's the number one thing we can do to help the program? Number one, pray. Pray that God would continue to expand the footprint here. We're seeing great growth. Number two, if you have enjoyed the conversation today with Ward, just go online, give it a positive review. That helps us on all the search engines. Tell your friends about it. Tell your family and ask them to check out the Bottom Line Faith program. 
If you are a Christ follower, you are a business owner or leader somewhere across the country, and you are saying, wow, I would be interested in learning about community. How can I gather with other like-minded Christ followers in business? Check out our website at truthatwork.org and go to the Roundtables tab there and learn how you might participate in one of our Roundtable chapters that meets across the country. I am so honored to be your host here at Bottom Line Faith. And until next time, I am Ray Hilbert. I'm encouraging you to live out your faith every day in the marketplace. God bless, and we'll see you then. Hi, my name is Ray Hilbert, and I'm the co-founder of Truth at Work. And I am at Northview Church in Carmel, Indiana. Imagine the opportunity to gather with over 1,500 fellow Christ followers and hear from a world-class lineup of speakers. This annual conference, now in its eighth year, features some of the most amazing Christian business and marketplace leaders that we bring together to communicate best practices on living out your faith in the marketplace. If you're wrestling through these issues of the integration of your faith, work, and life, or if you simply want to find more meaning, purpose, and direction to your daily work and career, this is an event you don't want to miss. That's the Truth at Work Conference, Friday, November 8th. Check out the website, and we'll see you there.